This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, tries desperately not to believe its own hype. I'm Scott Phillips and with me as always, and this time for a special Sunday mailbag edition of Motley Fool Money, Dr. Nirban Mahati. G'day, Doc. G'day, Captain. You just made me drive all the way <laughs> for a Sunday episode. Dude, even if I did that, which I didn't, even if I did... You get to drive your Tesla, you'd be more than happy, surely. Oh, that's probably true. If someone but said to you, you've got to go for a drive in your Tesla for a couple of hours, I don't reckon I'd have to even say it twice, you'd be out the door like a flash. Yeah, that's probably Sorry, true. Sorry, honey, got to go. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. Now, of course, the, the should we pull, we'll pull the curtain back slightly. Turns out, we're actually not in the Triple M studios or they're on Sunday, but that's just kind of one of those cool internet things that we get to pretend because we're recording this on Friday morning after our regular Friday podcast because we've got so much in the mailbag, so many great questions, comments, feedback and suggestions. We wanted to, frankly, enter them. Now, mate, I've got to say, we, we'll kick off, but I, I do want to reference if, you, if you're trying to work out whether to stay listening, as I mentioned on Friday's episode, we got a question from Russ who asked whether we worry about getting caught up in the hype of company narratives. He mentions Berkshire and Tesla. I don't know why you're caught up in the hype of Berkshire, mate. I'm not sure why I'm caught up in the hype of Tesla, but apparently we're going to have to talk about that. I'm going to make you wait because, mm. frankly, if it goes too long, we cut it at the end. So uh, let's, that's just a little bit of a tease for, for our listeners who, um, uh, let's just say things might get a little bit willing. That's all I'm saying. All right. Let's go. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy. The first one is from Daniel. He says... He says, G'day, Scott and Doc. I know you have a long list of questions. We do, but that's why we're doing this episode, Daniel. So thank you for sending yours in. But I was wondering if you could explain the recent trading of CAN Group, A-S-X-C-A-N. Now, here's this, Doc. Since October, the price has dropped by almost two-thirds to 38 cents, then back up to $1.50, and now around $1.20. At least that was at the time of writing. That was 11 days ago, so God knows what's happened since. During this time, there were no market announcements. What could possibly explain this yo-yo effect? Full on, Daniel. Now, mate, I don't know anything about Can Group. I don't know if you do, but I, I'm guessing, I, I'm just going to speculate here. I reckon the trade and the, the change in price got almost nothing to do with the company. Yeah, I was going to speculate the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> let, let's so Can Group, for those who don't know, is a marijuana company. Um, they have been, shall we say, exciting in terms of share price movements over the last couple of years. This is the reason I, I mean, so look, the answer I, I sent Daniel a quick private answer saying, hey, mate, we don't know anything about Can Group, um, so we don't have a lot to offer. But it, why I wanted to talk about the question is because we talked on Friday about rational markets. And markets are supposed to be rational. The academics will tell us that you simply plug the numbers in the alphas and the betas and the thetas and the deltas and the whatever else is, the amigas and the Swiss watches. And, no, sorry, different thing. Uh, and, and you're supposed to get an easy answer, and all the information is already known, it's already priced in. So, Everyone, everyone knows everything and the markets can only ever be efficient. And then Daniel says, but hang on, the price has gone from $0.38 cents to $1.50 to $1.20. Um, this has got to be, mate, the, the flow of money, both being overexcited and probably over-pessimistic about a company in quick succession, surely. You know, I'm just looking at something else. Uh, well, so the, the code for this is CAN, C-A-N. That's right. Um, here's the interesting thing, right? I mean, um, it is a pretty small company. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it has actually for a small company, a pretty huge trading volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, millions of millions of shares are exchanged regularly. So I, I'm, you know, it could be a bunch of different things. There could be 
uh, automated trading going on. Mm-hmm. There could be some people doing day trading on this. Um, there could be charting going on. All sorts of mm-hmm. things could be happening. Um, so, yeah, like, I mean, fundamentals of a company do not change that much yeah. over that short period of time. So, I'll tell you, on the 7th of January, there were 11 million shares that changed hands. That was the equivalent of about 10% of the company's shareholding. Yeah, that and like that's on lot. one day. Either side of that, there was 4.7 million shares traded the day before and 2.2 the day after. Um, it's it's saying something, isn't it? Yeah, that's a lot of churn going on. <laughs> which, you know, again, so I mean, I don't know what it is. I haven't looked at this company to yeah. have a view. Um, I'm going to share know, one other thing with our listeners, mate. The last eight trading days were plus 7%, plus 4%, minus 7.5%. Then two days of minus 0.4, which is uh, maybe the market was closed or something. And then minus four, then minus eight. <laughs> I mean, that's... That's a lot of jumping around. Isn't it? So, for, look, I don't know anything. Actually, today as we record, mate, the shares are down 6.1%, by the way. So that over the last three days combined, that's a fall of 18% on no news. Um, it's the, down 7.6% now. <laughs> if we keep talking long enough, we might be able to get it cheap. The, um, you know, so look... Don't believe that shares are priced rationally, particularly, particularly small companies like this where investor appetite and, and frankly what we call hot money, basically people who are kind of chasing the latest thing, um, they will run at this thing in droves when the price is going up because they want to be part of it, no one to miss out. As soon as there's possibly some bad news, simply the, the price starts going down, everyone jumps and says, oh, it's going to go terrible, it's going to fall, we're going to get out, going to get out, which of course makes it fall. Um, I don't know anything about Can Group, I, I don't have a recommendation or review on it other than to say when you see this sort of movements, this is indicative that there is not a lot of efficient pricing going on. It is being whipsawed around by the sentiment and the emotions of the people who are, I would say, I won't say investing in the stock, so trading the stock because that's what's happening. Um, whether it's algos, whether it's high frequency, whether it's day traders, whether it's just simply, you know, punters literally betting on the price movement. Um, I'm not saying there's no value in this company, but you just have to know that there's so much other stuff going on. The chance that at any day, the either the current price or the movement is representative of any fundamental underpinnings. Is remarkably, remarkably unlikely. Doc? Oh, I have nothing to say. Let's move on then to a question from Katza. Katza says, hi there. I've been listening to your podcast and have subscribed to both your services along with a couple of the US services as well. Thank you, Katza. Very kind. I constantly hear about the recommendation of not being in cash, which I agree with. In other words, being fully invested. However, I have been in the process where I've got rid of my financial advisor, which I was pleased about, and was considering what to do with my SMSF which has been in cash for over 12 months. Firstly, and also use a portion of savings currently in my offset account to purchase shares. Although I want to enter the market at the moment, I'm loath to pull a trigger as my overwhelming feeling is that there will be a significant downturn. I may be a victim of understanding economics from my tertiary education as current conditions just make little sense, especially at a macro level. He then goes on to say, I have highlighted all the ETFs and shares I want to buy at the moment, including some with dividends or from Motley Fool recommendations. Thank you. And would like to ask the following. So here we go, Doc, for all that. If you are 100% cash and are uncomfortable with allocating under 50% of cash into shares or ETFs, what would you both choose? Um, so the, the question here is... Um would I invest or not? Is the, I think you're saying if you're going to invest into cash into shares, what ETF? Sorry, what which ETFs would you choose? Well, like I mean, I'd, or shares? Yeah, like I mean, there's a bunch of things one could. Again, this is very difficult to answer without knowing specifics as to what yes. you want. Do you want to do? Do you want like you know income? Do you want growth? I mean, if I was investing in growth, I'd probably buy mm-hmm. you know, like an Nasdaq 100 ETF, for example. If I was to buy an ETF, 
um, if I should buy shares, a bunch of different shares that one can think of. Maybe actually, let me stop you there. Doc. I'm going to I'm going to go back and ask a different question. Peter didn't directly ask, but it's worth asking. If you were 100 percent cash right now, mm. would you be buying shares in ETFs today? Yeah, uh, what I would do personally is I would I would not invest the entire thing, or entire amount that I want to invest at one go. I would never do that because largely. Right. Even if I'm investing in a rising market and it means I'm buying, um, you know, I'm paying up for buying stuff over time. Mm-hmm. The reason I wouldn't do that is, is psychologically, it's just hard yeah. to, you know, put a large sum of money at one go and then mm-hmm. see it bounce around. It's much easier to actually psychologically put money slowly over time and then see it bounce up and down. <laughs> the fact that you get cash, at least in my mind, makes yeah. me. Uh, feel that you know I've got optionality of doing something mm. Mm, if if uh, you know the market goes uh, south. So yeah, so you know, like there are different rules of thumb that you can apply. For example, if, you know, if it took you like a like if it took you X years to save something, yeah, you don't want to invest it faster than X by two. That's like one rule of thumb that some people use. Um, so if it took you like you know two years to save something, you probably don't want to invest it faster than in a year. If mm. if you've been saving, as you know, and I, I mean I, I agree that you know by and large being fully invested makes sense, largely because markets rise over time. Mm. But uh, I think that is rational yep. thinking. Um, but I think there's a psychological thinking that is just equally important, perhaps more important, is how are you going to deal with the volatility that comes with investing in the market? Mm. Um, and how are you going to deal with a you know 10% correction, a 20% bear market, you know, a 30% drop? Like what is your, I think thinking about that and what you might do and how you might behave and how you would deal with that situation, I think is useful practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, to become a successful investor because what otherwise what might happen is you invest and you get out at the wrong time. Yeah, I think that's – look, I, I, I don't really have much to add other than I want to just emphasize something. So I have been in that situation. For my parents-in-law, we took a, a, a very a large cash amount from a house sale and some super, rolled it all together and put it invested in the market literally in one go. It was it was a, a decent amount of money. I'm not going to um, just out of their – to respect their privacy, divulge the amount, but it was all done. It was done over the course of, I want to say, one or two trading days, um, which is phenomenal when you're making trades to kind of go from zero to fully invested in two days. I was really happy with that because rationally, to Doc's point, that's there's no reason not to, um, purely rationally. And I, I was able to, probably just with experience, do that without – you know, worrying too much about it. This was a few years ago for the records. So I'm not saying it was just recently, just I don't want to I don't wanna imply that. Um, now I, I did that knowing that the market could absolutely crash, but kind of, you know, figuring as Doc said rationally that was the best thing to do. That I'm not saying I'm necessarily special or, or, or unique in that case, but there's a difference between the rational right answer and the answer that's going to keep most people in the right stead. If you're going to lose sleep for a month if you buy today and the market falls 20% next week, which frankly it could always do, no matter what level we're at, um, then you want to be just you want to avoid that by as Doc says investing regularly and slowly. So I think that's probably what I would do as well, um, unless you know for you, for a fact that you're someone who can deal with that volatility. If if they're if they're super fallen by 20% the week after, I wouldn't have been very popular probably. I wouldn't have been very happy, um, but I still would do the same thing again because I think on balance it's the, it's the rationally correct way to act. But um, I I didn't you know I, I I've experienced with it. And B, they weren't going to freak out, or if they did, um, they kind of had someone who could who could kind of hold their hand through the process. Um, so th- that's that's the way to think about it, Doc. In terms of then how you would allocate that cash, I mean, this is a this is a piece of string question, right? Every investor is different. So I don't know. I don't know if you have any general thoughts. I mean, 
I have some ETFs in my portfolio. I don't know whether you do or not, actually. I've never asked you. Um, but in any case, what you might do, what I might do, might be different to what someone else might do, particularly if they're already in cash and maybe a little bit nervous about getting back into the market. Um, so maybe maybe just some general thoughts about how to deploy half of, half of the cash into a portfolio at the moment. Yeah, like, again, you know, like, so, so I'll give you a growth investors. I don't, don't own any ETFs. Um, and, and that's largely because I, I feel that I can do better than the ETFs um, right, myself. Right. Yep. So, but I'm willing to take the volatility that comes with it, the ups and downs and the swings <laughs> that come with it. It's really a personal decision at that point. Um, I would go shares, I'd invest in, you know, half the amount. And again, I wouldn't do it actually quickly. I would do it a little bit, you know, spread over some months. Mm. Um, and yeah, I would buy a bunch of shares, you know, maybe 20, 30 uh, shares to have a diversified portfolio. That's what I would do. Mm. Um, but I can totally see the rationale for ETFs as well. I mean, mm. you know, you could get actually pretty good returns with ETFs and you could, um, you know, you could offset yourself from the index by buying things that are not the index. Mm. Um, so so there's that opportunity as well with the ETF. So that, that would be my suggestion. Um, again, you need, I think sort of the context is important. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. Um, I will say I think there's, judging by and look we can't give personal advice right but if I had someone who was or if I was trying to advise a group of members who are frankly you know your your, your question comes across a little bit as, as sort of nervous or uncertain You've, you mentioned as, as much uh, sorry your, your tertiary education it, it seems to me like you know where you are in your investing life and your experience it may well be best to, to be a little bit heavier in ETFs particularly if you're not going to have advice from someone now if you're going to have you know Doc and I running our services as you've already said um, we will happily give advice on that on a general basis so you'll always know what our thoughts are on a stock whether it's a buy hold or whether we're going to sell it um, so to some degree if you're happy to follow on with somebody else's advice then the decision is less difficult than it otherwise might need to be um, if you're going to do it yourself then maybe stay with some ETFs and adding stocks as you feel more comfortable and maybe as you put more and more money into the market it might make sense but if early volatility is going to concern you um, then the best way to avoid that is probably some ETFs as a, as a first protocol sound fair doc? yeah I think so now he asked a second question he says, excuse my ignorance, and don't, don't have to excuse it, Peter. No one knows until I ask. Uh, but is the weighting or allocation of companies within an ETF actively managed to adjust for potentially adverse movements or are the percentage allocation of companies fixed within each ETF and the price is determined as per the current moment in time? I hope this makes sense. So Peter's basically saying, well, how do the weightings of an ETF, inside an ETF change, mate? Now, first thing we will say is an ETF isn't an ETF isn't an ETF. Um, these days, ETF means every possible sort of index, uh, sorry, exchange traded fund, I should say. In the old days, it was only ever index funds. So there are two types of ETFs. There are passive and active. A passive fund invests in an index. An active fund is basically like any other managed fund off market. It just happens to be on market, which is what makes it exchange traded. So to some degree, we need to be careful about the two. So an active fund is an active fund is an active fund. What about an index tracking fund? I mean, how is an index ETF portfolio allocation weighting determined yeah so let's use asx 200 as an example right so if you if you have got the asx 200 the index that's managed by the asx and snp um, um, wh what they would do is every quarter for example they might rebalance and basically say well this is what the index constitutes right mm -hmm. and then once you know what the index constitutes you know the market cap and, and in some cases, also liquidity adjusted. So it's market cap, but adjusted for liquidity in some cases. Mm. Uh, I'm just being more general so I don't, in, in the explanation here. And and what you would do is that, well, you know that you know, this company should be on a, on a liquidity adjusted basis, say 5% of the total, 
then that's what the ETF would own or the in, yep. in the index fund would own. Um, and then once you've done that once on that quarter, every time the price moves up and down, the allocations move up and down and they don't change relative to the index because the index is also moving up and down in the same proportion, right? Yep. Um, so that's how you would manage it. And then at come the end of the quarter, if something gets thrown out, you know, something falls off, the SX200, that gets taken out, so it'll be sold off from the ETF. Something gets added to the ETF that gets bought into the ETF. Um, and that's really the way it would work. So it's, there's no active buying and selling. Uh, on a mm. on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, the trading really happens towards the end of the quarter, or whenever the adjustments happen. Whenever the the agency which maintains the index mm-hmm. is changing the index, that's the point at which you know. Following that is when the trading would happen. Right. Otherwise, it's pretty passive, right? Yeah. So there's, there's no there's no there's no expectation or kind of forward looking nature in the way these things are traded, um, because frankly, the the managers don't know any more than you or I do what's going to happen. So they can't they can't you know plan for adverse changes because the adverse changes aren't known. Um, and and like all investing, if we all looked at the risks and said I'm not going to invest because there are risks, so we never invest. So they can't do that. Um, to Doc's point, just to add some more color on the changes, what happens is every quarter. S&P will decide with the ASX, as Doc says, whether or not a company should go into or out of a particular index. So let's say in the ASX 200, let's just pick two companies for fun. Let's say they decide to take Woolies out of the index and put uh, Elmo, we talked about on Friday, Elmo into the index. Anyone who's tracking that index would have to sell Woolworths and buy Elmo shares to make sure that it represents and basically mirrors the index weighting. So that's that, the other changes that happen quarterly. Um, otherwise, as Doc says, if you you know if BHP is five percent of the market, then you want the ETF to have five percent of its its money in BHP. If BHP share price doubles, it becomes ten percent of the market, and because you already own those shares, then your value goes up, and it's ten percent of the ETF as well. Any more on that, Doc? No. That was an excellent question, Peter. Thank you for the opportunity to answer it. All right. Next question is from Ash, mate. Um, Ash says, "I have a question." Sorry for asking a question that I know you have answered previously. I want to get exposure to US tech via the ASX. Can you please advise the best fund for this? I'm a very happy member through SANEO, that's Share Advisor and Extreme Opportunities. Um, I asked him whether it was for the podcast. He said, mate, it's for any medium you would like to answer by. Really appreciate what you guys are doing. Love the full banter and also your simple ways of opening my eyes to the world of investing. And I said at the end, he says, then you're a bloody ripper. So mate, we appreciate it, Ash. Thank you. When he says the simple ways we're opening his eyes, I think he means I'm a simpleton and I'm just not very smart. But I'll assume he means that we're helping. Uh, I think it just means you're smart and simple. <laughs> that's probably, well, yeah, maybe maybe both. Maybe that's, that's what he means. Way, probably the best way to describe it. All right, mate. What are some of, what, before you choose the preferred one, I can, I can think of two ways to access US tech. What are, what are some of the options available for ASX investors looking for access to US tech? Yeah, so uh, I'll, then I'll say that Three ways to do that. Okay. okay. So one is, so like a lot of companies that are, actually not a lot, but some, some companies that are actually US based, mm-hmm. but are relatively small and therefore don't list on uh, NASDAQ or NYSE, the two predominant um, US exchanges, mm-hmm. they have a tendency to uh, to either go to the ASX or some other, in, uh, other oh, market, which would allow for... Um, smaller companies to list, right? I mean, the US market has got trillion dollar companies. Mm. Our largest is a you know, few hundred billion dollars. So a small company with a few hundred million dollars is actually okay here. It's not yep. gonna be lost in the in, in the sea or the ocean, right? So I think that's number one. So there are some US-based businesses that list on the ASX. That's one option. The primarily, there are a lot of also, then the second, there are a lot of Australian businesses that list in Australia 
but they do primarily business overseas. Right, yeah. Right? So there's another way to get U.S. exposure via the ESX. I mean, if you directly want exposure to stuff that's listed in the U.S., mm -hmm. then um, I guess your choice is to invest via the um, the ETFs, right? So there's the NASDAQ 100 as an example. The S&P 500 is another one that's available. Um, there are a few other, you know, uh, thematics, thematics-focused yep. uh, funds that you can, you can invest in, um, say, um, uh, robotics. You can invest in, you know, clean energy. You can mm. invest in... Sustainability. There's a lot of different themes. You know, you can invest in Morningstar Moat. There are a lot, a lot of the op options. There, there are plenty of ETFs. Uh, whether or not they suit your needs and whether or not you know uh, they do what you want them to do is is a completely different <laughs> matter. But there, there's a there are many ways in which you can directly get exposure to a basket of uh, U.S. listed or foreign listed, for that matter of fact. It doesn't have to be U.S. listed. You can get mm. Asian exposure, for example, uh, right here on the ASX by buying an ETF. So, mm. so those are some ways in which one could do it. Mate, I've, um, uh, you gave me more thoughts than I had, so that I'm glad. Thank you. The um, Thinking about the ETF options, so I think if you want sort of from, from a broadest one, you can get some tech, some U.S. tech as part of other ETFs. And so I'm thinking here about... Um, uh, you know, if we do it, it took a Vanguard Total World exchange, you get some US tech as part of that. Coming down from that, the S&P 500, as you say, has then got more US tech as a proportion. Coming down from that, I guess the NASDAQ 100 ETF, NDQ is the code, is probably the, is that the cleanest index weighted tech kind of exposure you'd get on the ASX? I think it might be. Uh, I think so, yeah. It's like, it's basically, yeah, the, the clean index space, yeah. There's also one called... Uh, the uh, Morningstar Global Technology ETF, which is an equal weighted tech, but that's again global. So there, there's there's no there's no clean solution to the question, Ash. But there's probably a different range of options you might want to go for. I'm pretty sure the yeah, the ETF product is uh, the Morningstar product is um, actively managed from memory, or at least it's equal weighted. I think. Whereas the Nasdaq ETF is a straight index passive um, mirroring of the index. Yeah, like I mean, most of those ETFs are actually some form of index. They're yeah. some form of index because, but the the problem with the the index is that it's there, there are different index creators who have different rules for the indexes, mm. indices, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. in the Morningstar ones, for example, have um, a relationship with what the Morningstar people think is the fair value, and right, then they right, decide right. based yeah, on yeah, that. Yeah. Um, actually, I was going to add, you know, this this one is a relatively new thing. Um, uh, is again, is there's some amount of, um, I guess, investigative. Uh, uh, you need to look into it carefully before you look at the risks uh, and um, the opportunities. With the 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 GX index uh, or the GX uh, market has basically launched this thing called Tracers, which um, gives you a one is to one exposure to some U.S. companies. You can actually buy directly those, those U.S. company stocks they trade here um, via the via a tool called the Tracers. Now, the right now you can get exposure to some of them, like I think a thirty odd stocks but mm. you have to remember that what they've basically done is they've held those shares in trust in the US and then there's a one is to one mapping for those shares here and they trade during the normal hours 
um, ours in on the on the ASX. So there are questions around here. You know, is there enough volume? Um, is is this product going to be around uh, for the long term? So this is equivalent to what in the U.S. people do called ADRs, which is when foreign stocks list on the U.S. Mm. Um, do they do the ADR? So this is basically reverse ADR in that sense. Um, that's that's another fees associated with um, with this product, which one needs to look into it. So I mean, it's an interesting product, which one could consider. Mm-hmm. I like that, mate. Um, thank you, Ash. Hope great question, mate. Hopefully, we've given you an answer there. Uh, lots of different options. Uh, feel free to get any or all of those. But there are plenty of op- ways to access the US technology sector more broadly on the ASX. And so we'd encourage you to do that. Of course, the other thing is, um, and again, depending on everyone's individual circumstances, I still would say at some level, um, there's some value in investing directly in the US itself. And I guess at some point, with if you are interested enough, if you have sufficient capital and you're happy to do the a little bit of extra work, investing directly in the US might be the best way to do that, Doc. Yeah. Next question is from Thor. And mate, when the God of Thunder asks a question, you can be damn sure we're going to answer. So he says, hi, Anirban and Scott. This is a question for the podcast. Thank you for finding time to answer it. Thanks for a great podcast and good advice. Very kind. Thank you, mate. It's always interesting to hear what you have to say and the perspective you give. I was hoping you could steer me in the right direction. As, our, uh, as my partner and I are about to embark on our investment adventure in the near future. Our mortgage will be paid off shortly. And we would like to invest in shares. And we're thinking of signing up for the share advisor service. Well, firstly, Thor, I think that's a very, very, very good idea. I I can't speak more highly of that. Uh, I think it's an excellent, excellent idea. Um, But you then ask other questions. I don't know why he's asking more questions. That should be the only question he needs to ask. But (laughs) apparently he wants more stuff. He says, what are your thoughts about discretionary trusts? We're looking to invest about 100K annually. We're maxing out our pre-tax super too, by the way. Good stuff. And we'd like to make it as tax effective as possible. The idea would be, would be to build a large enough nest egg in the next 10 to 15 years, which would allow us to work part-time to cover our living costs while our investment keeps compounding until an early retirement, maybe 20 years away. Liking that. A trust seems ideal for distributing and reinvesting profits. We just don't know how to find a good lawyer to make sure it is set up according to our needs. We've asked friends and colleagues for recommendations, but none of them, none of them have a trust. How do we find someone we can trust with our trust? Thank you, Thor. Doc. Yeah, I, uh, this is, um, yeah, I, I really don't know what to say about this. I mean, you know, discretionary trusts, I mean, you can do it. This is more personal finance advice. And I mean, really. It gets into tax advice too at some point. Yeah, and it really, you need to talk to your accountant and advisor to figure out. That would what mm-hmm. be what I would say. Yeah. Yeah, it's good advice. I, look, it, it is something that's personal for your circumstances. In terms of finding someone you can trust with your trust, uh, to answer your last question first, Thor, um, the answer is go and see a few people. Um, honestly, Shula, there is the answer on this one. Go and get an obligation-free meeting with as many people as you want to. Generally speaking, financial advisors might be the best place to start with that one. I've said lots and lots of times, I think the financial services industry takes way too much money out of our pockets as a, as a rule. But where financial advisors in particular are fantastic is in structure questions like this one. And I would absolutely encourage everyone to make sure your investments and your, frankly, general personal financial lives are set up correctly. And a financial advisor, a financial planner is great for that. So go and do that. Um, if you find a good planner, again, you need to have a look around. We get asked this a lot. And frankly, Doc and I don't use a lot of financial planners ourselves. So it's hard to kind of know across the entire market, across multiple cities, multiple parts within a city, 
who's good, who's bad, who's different. Um, and the way I've done it in the past is the same way we're suggesting you do it, which is we go and see a few people. We have an accountant now that came from, a, personally, that came from a recommendation from a friend. Uh, we went and saw two or three others and decided on this particular one who was great for us. Um, so honestly, there was no there was no kind of secret to that. There was no kind of you know, special secret list or, or secret question. Just go and ask the questions you want to ask, see what their answers are, see how comfortable you are with the person you're dealing with. That's really, really important. Trust can be super useful. Um, we're not tax experts here. The only about trust is they have to distribute all of the income every year anyway. And so unless you have a way of distributing income to people who aren't on a higher tax bracket, it can be of limited use. If a trust makes 100 bucks in profit and it has to distribute it to both you and your partner, for example, if you're both in the same tax bracket, there's actually no value in that. Um, it really only works if you've got someone in a lower tax bracket. Now, trust can survive, depending on how they're set up, survive a relationship, um, particularly a death, for example. So if you want to leave a trust for kids, uh, you can set one up that lasts either indefinitely or for, I think, 99 years. Some, though, are your own natural lives, so be careful about that. It also does separate the assets out from your personal situation. So if you did have an issue where, for example, you somehow were uh, personally bankrupted, uh, those assets would be safe from that bankruptcy proceeding. So there are value and there are reasons to do it. Um, they're less attractive than they used to be in the old days because they're frankly used to tax dodge. And while I don't have any problem with anyone uh, paying less, uh, you know, as little tax as they have to, um, I also like the fact governments are trying to make sure none of us are getting away with less than we should. Um, and so they were changed relatively recently. So I made a long answer without much specificity, unfortunately. Um, but I would say go and see a few people, go see a few planners to start with before you go to lawyers. Um, understand that bit first. Um, some plans actually will do the paperwork for you. Others will have lawyers they prefer. I would go that way rather than looking for the lawyer first unless you know exactly what you already want, in which case um, having a dig around for that. But again, friends and family and simply just a couple of meetings face-to-face -face over over a desk um, just to see if you like the person, if you feel like they know what they need to do and what you need to do. Any more on that, Doc? No. Thank you, Thor. Great question, mate. I'm glad we had a chance to answer it. Question from Chris, mate, and also a question from Dave. We're going to ask these together. Um, these are directed at me, so I will um, offer you the chance to have a view and then I'll, I'll share mine. But um, we've talked a little bit about ethical investing on multiple podcasts recently, and it seems to have struck a chord. Um, if you're sick of hearing about it, my apologies. Um, but we've had a couple of questions about my thoughts on that. So I do want to give them the time of day and answer them. Uh, we won't We won't intend to make this an ongoing series because um, there's a, yeah, I have a view on it. It's not It's not a particularly super strong view. It's not one I, you know, I'm going to die in a ditch over. So I'm happy to, happy to talk about it and move on. But since we're getting questions on it, I think it's worth answering. First one I said from, uh, from Chris is, Hi, Scott and Doc. I really liked two episodes with the guests. They were Eliza Owen and Warren Hogan. If you haven't listened to those yet, have a listen. Also, we did one with Veronica Morgan since this was sent out, and that was last weekend. So we're doing a few interviews. Hopefully, if you like them, let us know. If you have suggestions for guests, also let us know that as well because we're always looking for interesting and cool people to have a chat to. Anyway, he says, at the same time, welcome back, Doc. There you go, mate. Chris likes having you That's back. That's awesome. We are pleased to have you back, mate. Thank you. Never the same without you. I'd like to challenge a bit. Scott's view about ethical investing and that buying shares after initial capital raising is just a change of hands. In short, smaller demand means lower share prices. Lower share prices means less funding during the next capital raising for another mine or whatever it is, or at least more shares needed to be issued for the same dollars. Indirectly, I think it makes unethical companies' lives harder. Am I missing something? Great podcast, Chris. Chris, great question. Uh, hold that thought because I'm going to throw Dave's in as well and then we'll get back to it. Uh, Dave says, hi, Scott and Doc. Great job on helping us all grasp economic and investing concepts a little easier. Thank you, Dave. Question relating to last week's mailbag and ethical investing. Scott, you spoke about even if we made ethical investing decisions, it would not move the needle on companies doing unethical things. I can't understand how. 
If there is no buyer for an equity, why would that not drive down the price? Like the retail market, if demand reduces for a product, supply should follow. Can you please help me get my head around this? Dave. Do you want to have a go at Chris and Dave's questions first, Doc? Or you want me to no, I'll kind of briefly answer Chris's point. So I think Chris's, uh, Chris, made, you make a very good point in the sense that if, company needs to ta- if a company needs to tap the capital market, then demand for shares matter. And I think if there's a large-scale movement of funds from... Uh, you know, unethical or, you know, polluting companies or coal companies or oil and gas companies or whatever people don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm not talking about my personal opinion, but just, you know, if right, that is right. the, if, if you know, that is the theme, then it could actually pull vast sums of money out of certain themes and move vast sums of money into certain themes. And if that lifts boats for the good companies in that theme, then it make access to capital for those companies easier. That's absolutely possible. I think the comment about the secondary market is more in relation to uh, businesses that don't need to raise ongoing capital. I think it absolutely matters for companies that are in the growth phase or building stuff that they need the capital market and therefore the stock price uh, matters and therefore all the actions around it matter. Um, But yeah, um, yeah, so I think you do have a point there, Chris, and and, and, uh, rightly raised. I, I agree with Doc. I will say that the I guess the challenge here is that yeah, the question is to the degree to which it matters, right? So let's say let's say you you hate um, coal mining. Let's just let's just pick that out, right? Um, and you know the, the big coal mines. So, and I don't BHP is not in coal anymore, so I'm gonna I'm gonna horribly horribly trade. BHP is in petrol. Let's go with oil. Um, let's say you're talking about oil companies. You don't you don't want to invest in oil companies because you don't think that mining for oil is good for the planet. Completely fine view. And when Scott and I, Doc and I, sorry, launched Doc and Scott's oil company, uh, we, we launch it and it's on the market and we want to raise more capital. And you say, ah, I'm going to get you guys. I'm not going to buy your shares. So the prices will be lower than it otherwise might be. And that's possible. Uh, and so we can't launch any more capital raising. So we go out of business. And Charles goes, yes, one, a, win for, a win for environmental uh, activism, which is great. Uh, problem is that BHP still exists and BHP will always do a thousand times as much volume as we do and every other company does, right? And so again, on a, on a broader scale, you know, does does the activism by the shareholder change the way business is done? Does it reduce the amount of oil that's drilled? Does it reduce the amount of oil that's consumed? Um, I would argue not in any meaningful way. Now look, you know, does it matter on the edges? Maybe. Does it, does it reduce the amount of oil by 1% or something? I guess maybe. Does it, is it likely though to really meaningfully change the way business is done i just don't see it and again as doc said because the bhps of the world aren't raising more capital in fact they're more likely to be giving capital back rather than raising it at the moment um you just it doesn't it just doesn't make a difference right so if you don't own bhp shares and you don't own scott and doc's oil company shares then i guess at some level maybe it makes a difference the other thing i guess is unless no one is going to raise or fund the company they're still going to get the money from somewhere right if there's a project worth funding so let's go back to the doc and scott example let's say the shares were a dollar and then all the ethical investors sell out and shares fall at 80 cents or 50 cents we got a project that's going to be super super profitable Uh, we're going to raise money to go and drill a um let me just be fun for a while we're going to drill drill the arctic kill some polar bears and drill some oil a horrible thing but let's let's assume that's what we're doing and we can we can for a million dollars worth of shareholders capital we can make a billion dollars in profit now, whether the shares are a dollar, fifty cents, twenty cents, one cent, we're going to find money to fund that activity, right? Because people want the result that comes with it. So, if the shares are lower, yes, it means the share price is lower. Yes, it means we're going to have to sell more shares to raise the same amount of capital. But if everyone's making money doing it, then it's still going to get done. Uh, and that's kind of the 
uncomfortable, unfortunate reality of how it works. I, again, I'm not happy about it. Um, I'd be happy if, if it d- did matter. It just doesn't. Uh, so, you know, again, as you say directly, you know, uh, um, lower prices means less funds during the next capital raising. I don't think that's true unless the projects are so, you know, borderline that no one wants to fund it because of the risk. I guess it's, again, it's possible. Not very likely. More shares issued. Yes, absolutely. Um, does it make unethical companies' lives harder? Maybe slightly. Um, does it change the world in the way you want it to? I just don't think it does. And again, I don't don't take any joy in that. Um, to Dave's question, um, Dave, it does drive the price of the, the equity down. So I think I said a couple of weeks ago that Altria, the business known as Philip Morris in the past in the US, its share price has been low for 50 years. The problem with that is that it also was the best performing company over half a century in the US, the single best performing company despite a low share price. And that's because the share price only falls once, right? So again, I'm back on the Scott and Docks oil company. Let's say the shares are a buck. All the ethical investors sell out. Shares fall to 20 cents. That happens once. Thereafter, it maybe 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 the PE goes from, I'll make the maths work, goes from 30 to six, right? So P of six. If you buy Scott and Docks oil company to P of six, even if it, the PE never changes, if we can grow profits over time, then even at the same PE, you're still making more money. The shares will go up from that newly lower point. So the shares falling happen, and yeah, the current CEO probably gets fired for it. But the new CEO comes in, he gets a inherits a company with the shares of twenty cents. The PE might still be six, um, and he runs that company for twenty years. Over that time, the PE doesn't change, but profits grow at ten percent a year. It just you know the share price will go up in line with those profits no matter what, even if the PE does fall once because it doesn't keep falling year after year after year after year. There will always be capital at a cheap enough price. Like with Altria, I've never owned them. I don't know that I ever would feel super comfortable owning them personally. Um, Doc, I don't know about you whether you'd own them or not given the choice. But um, in any case, whether I own them or not, when the shares are cheap enough, someone eventually owns the shares. And from that newly lower price, even if the ethical investors do impact the price, it falls meaningfully. It then starts next year or tomorrow for that newly lower level. A new CEO comes in, new board, new shareholders. Yes, the past kind of matters, but it's less relevant, right? We always say you don't have to make money back the same way you, you, you lost it. On the same token, you know, if we, so Blackmore's, right? Great example. It's still a buy for me. Um, the shares fell 13% this week. Do I, do I care the shares have fallen? Of course I do. But all I need to decide for myself is should I sell out now or is today's price attractive? If today's price is attractive, I own the shares. And the fact that they fell in the past, whether for ethical or unethical reasons, or in this case in Blackmore's, just for purely operational ones, it doesn't matter to the future performance of the company, unfortunately, because all that matters is what happens from here and a rational investor making that decision. The fact they fell in the past just simply doesn't matter anymore. Doc? I have nothing to really add to it. I think you've covered all the all the points. Yeah. Done enough detail? Done in detail. <laughs> Very good. Shall we move on? That's good. Um, thank you for the questions, guys. I, I'm actually really happy to talk about it. I don't want to bore anyone else about it. Um, I think when it comes to ethical investing, we desperately want it to be true so much that we kind of want to believe it. I, I just, as I said before, and I, I'll keep saying, I'm, I, I wish if someone can convince me otherwise, I'm really happy to accept it. I have no ideological view here. Um, I'd like to think it mattered. I'd like to be able to invest that way and, and make a difference. I just think that I'm, I'm far more useful in using my consumer dollar um, and my investing profits, frankly, rather than the shares I choose to buy. Let's move on. Let's move on. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. We've got a question from Dougie. Dougie says, hello, Scott and Doc. First of all, I messaged you on here to help the Doc on Instagram argument. Or maybe Doc would be more of a TikTok man. Doc, Instagram or TikTok? Which would you prefer? Oh, TikTok. <laughs> I want to see you on TikTok. 
TikTok is apparently what the cool kids use to share videos. Is that right? I am very cool. That's why I'm on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> Do you know anyone on TikTok? My daughter's on TikTok. Is she? <laughs> okay. All the, all the kids use TikTok. All the cool kids. Mm. You, you know, things gets uncool when the adults all join the join the kids, right? Same happened with Facebook. All right. So, cool. Lucky, get you on Instagram or TikTok? No Instagram. Why I'm, TikTok? I'm, can, you, can you promise you should be on TikTok? Well, not really, but I mean, <laughs> I, I'm generally, I'm, I'm not on any, um, you know, Facebook or related service. <laughs> All right. Dougie says, I'm 27 and I just started to save for my first house with my partner. We're now debt free. Well done, mate. And predict we'll be able to have a deposit within the next two to three years. Sensational. My partner is self-proclaimed not financially savvy when it comes to saving and investing tactics, but I have convinced her to start listening to your podcast. Because of you, she has begun to start trusting investing our joint savings. That is awesome, Dougie. Thank you, mate, for making the effort. Um, so your partner, who you don't name, I don't think I'm just quickly reading through the rest of the email. You don't. Uh, so Dougie's partner, uh, thank you for listening. We're hoping we're helping a lot. We're helping you, and if we have helped in some small way, we're super happy about that. So thank you for thank you for listening. Um, thank you for for trusting us. And and uh, I hope and I know that if you guys invest regularly and and um, and yeah, thoughtfully. I have absolutely no doubt you'll have a very, very significant nest egg in future. All right. Dougie says, we plan to invest our house deposit savings in blue chip high dividend stocks in the hope that our dividend payments and any potential growth can beat the bank's very low savings interest rates. I have a separate long-term stock and speculative stock strategy, but I would like to ask for some general advice about our home deposit savings idea. I know you can't give specific advice. Thank you, Dougie. We can't. Um, he says, I keep reading and being warned about the risk of recession in Australia over the coming years. Whilst for my long-term stocks, this doesn't worry me, I am worried about how a recession would impact my short-term two to three-year home deposit investments. Can you please share your thoughts to try to beat the bank's negligible savings interest rates with short-term dividend payments and any tips on how to invest if a recession were to happen? Sorry for the long message. It's long like my investment runway. Love it. Full on, Dougie. That's a very cool message talking about a million different ways. So, Dougie, thank you very much. And again, to your partner, thank you for listening. We appreciate it. Um, look, a family that listens to the Motley Fool Money podcast together stays together, right? I think so. Especially on this Valentine's... Well, you'll hear this a couple of days after Valentine's... I should have put this in, in Friday's mailbag on Valentine's Day, but we're recording this on Valentine's Day. So, happy Valentine's Day. Dougie, I hope you did the right thing by your lovely partner. Doc, two to three years. Dougie's saying blue chip dividend stocks, try and beat the bank but he's not entirely sure it's the right thing to do. We can't tell Dougie what he should do. What would you say in general about that sort of strategy? Yeah, Dougie, mate, I think it's a, it's a great question. It's actually a really tough question, um, especially in the current circumstances where if you keep your money in a term deposit, you get maybe, you get lucky to get 2%. Mm-hmm. Eh? Um, so, you know, pers- I can, at a very high level, I think the main issue with keeping short-term funds that you need over the short-term in the market is that you are... I guess um, you're going to be beholden to volatility. And so, I mean, you know, is the market going to crash? I don't know. Is it likely to crash? Probably not. Is the recession going to happen? I don't know. Is it likely to happen? Probably not. Um, All of those things. So I think my general sense is it's better to keep short-term money that one would need, which one needs in in a definitive period of like a couple of years, for example, uh, such as a home deposit, I'd keep it personally in 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 cash type assets. That's that's what I th- I think I would do. Um, but again, I think different strategies for different people 
you know, I can't really say what is appropriate for you, but you know, I, I'm just saying that for from my own viewpoint, I, I like I try to keep stuff that I would need in the next couple of years out of the market. That's my strategy, at least. Doctor Ted, right? I um I have a a slightly nuanced addition to that, which is to say. Dougie, for me, I think you're – look, over any long period of time, I have absolutely no doubt that well-chosen shares will beat the market. Now, there's no guarantees about anything. I should not beat the market, beat cash in the bank, I should say. No guarantees about anything. So when I say I have no doubt, I, I can't promise you I can't make any guarantees, A, because it's wrong, B, because ASIC would hate it, and uh, and I don't want to call from ASIC. Um, generally speaking, though, I, you know, if you're asking me, the probabilities are remarkably high – essentially 100% probability, but 99 point something percent probability that over any long period of time, shares beat cash. That, that's pretty straightforward. The problem is, as Doc's already said, two to three years is not a long time. And you've only got to think about it. If, I, if, if we're sitting here in 2007, you said, here's what I'm going to do. What should I do? And we said, yeah, look, shares will beat the market, beat, beat cash over the long term. They have. But in 2008, 2009, they fell by like 40%, right? So you're, let, let's, just, let's just pick a number. Let's say you got 100 grand for a home deposit. Um, I don't know how much it is, but let's assume it's that. All of a sudden, you've got 60 grand left over and your partner's looking at you saying, you idiot, why did you trust these motley fool blokes? You you know, <laughs> what were you thinking? Uh, now, you, you now would have a couple hundred grand, by the way, including dividends. So it would have been a very, very smart thing to do. But uh, at the time, and if you had to buy a house in 2009, you were left high and dry. So th- my answer is absolutely the same as Doc's. If you know you need the money in the next two to three years, you're going to have to swallow it and just leave it in cash, mate, because it's not worth the risk of not having the money. That being said, if two to three years is indicative or preferable but not definite and there's no hard and fast end to that period of time, if you could blow that out to say four or five years or six years if you had to, then I would actually still go into shares. The reason is because over long term I expect they'll do well, so that's a good thing. The problem is in the short to medium term, I don't know where they're going to go. And if I, if you were to say to me, what would you do, Scott? I would say I would probably put the money in shares knowing that if, you know, if my partner wasn't particularly um, set on a particular time frame. If you know, if you need to be in the house by 2023, don't do it. If you get 2023 and the 100 grand's fallen to 80 because the market's down, and you can wait for a couple of years till it goes back to 120, well, then great. You know, do that. So it's all about how hard and fast that two to three year time period is. If you need the money within three years, definitely or almost certainly, leave it in cash. Just suck up the lower returns. If you have the flexibility on timing, then it gives you the opportunity to invest in better ideas. Doc. No, I have nothing to add, really. I think you you being very comprehensive today. Oh, well, you did, you did all the hard work. I just added to it, which basically means uh, it's less for me to do. <laughs> I'm just looking dumber and dumber and dumber and dumber today. I'm gonna. I'm, well, you're on. You basically you're on on this Valentine Day, um, <laughs> um, you know, rocket ship that you know you just just you just destroying me here. I'm all about the love, Doc. I'm all about love. That's all absolutely right. not true, mate. I said you did all the hard work. I just get to I just get to sprinkle some extra stuff over the top, and uh, take some take some benefit. All right. Question from Scott. Obviously, a, um, a good bloke named Scott. Uh, are you putting the questions in now as a proxy? <laughs> no. Well, I'm gonna. You have to. I'll show you. I'll show you the uh, the the request. The question came from Instagram, by the way. I can't tell you who it was from because Scott said. Also, if you read this, first name only, please. So, Scott, I will say putting that at the end of your message was it was a gamble because it's entirely possible I read from the top and then went oh bugger. But luckily for you, I did. I did see it. So, if you are going to. Uh, Send us a question or a comment. Just if you don't want your name mentioned, please mention it at the top. Just because I can't promise I'm ever going to be clever enough to start from the top and do it well. But in this case, I did read the end first. He says, please use my name. So it is Scott. Scott says, hi, guys. Absolutely loving the podcast. Good man. I'm after your opinion about entering the market with a lump sum versus dividing this into smaller investments over time. 
have a feeling that our members, our listeners will like uh, hear some echoes of a previous question, Doc. I recently sold my principal place of residence and have a six-figure sum I want to put into shares. I've recently changed teams from property to shares. Good man. I'm investing in broadly diversified ETFs, mostly Vanguard. Um, and he also has another um, a couple of funds here that are lots of codes I won't bother with. My question more generally is about dollar cost averaging investments over time to smooth out the highs and the lows but potentially miss out on the gains in the short term. For example, buying 10K a month over a year or so versus putting all the money in at once and being in the market for longer and any immediate gains, but also exposed to market falls in the short term. P.S. I've paid my fee up front a five-star review. Beauty. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it, mate. Uh, look, we say that all the time. We don't, we don't, you don't need to give us a review. You don't need to give us some stars, but um, good luck getting your question answered if you don't. You That's need to I'm give us a review. It, and a it, good one. It helps. It I'm, helps. I'm, I'm just telling the truth. <laughs> Scott is just being sophisticated, which he always is. Sophisticated, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm exactly. just this, you know, uh, unsophisticated, rough person, you know, who just says whatever they feel like saying. Just, just quietly, if you met us both, you know that's not the yeah, truth. Yeah, it's just, 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 just a review. A good so, one. So, Doc, we've kind of answered this, mate. Um, if you're in Scott's shoes or just for yourself, 100 grand up front or 10 grand a month over a year or so? Um. I'll, I'd still do, you know, this is a, this really comes to personal comfort. Mm. I mean, I would not put, I know rationally, and you know what, you've already answered this, right? Rationally, what you want to do is you want to be invested with all of it as soon as you can because the market goes up more often than it goes down and and therefore that's the right thing to do. However, I feel that you should always do stuff that actually, you know, the the, the most important thing is not, Investing is actually time in market, right? And what you want to do is everything possible to maximize your time in the market. And 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 therefore, a lot of decisions that I try to do, I make personally for myself, is all about making sure that I can actually sustain myself in the market for as long as I want to be an investor. And, and that, in a way, guarantees me better returns than anything else. So my personal strategy is always to invest slowly over time. I would I would take the 10k per month. I mean, there might be months when you know if the market has fallen a bit, I might invest more. If the market has gone up a bit, I might invest less. But that would be my strategy. Uh, fully acknowledging that 100k upfront likely has um, better returns. <laughs> mm. uh, the, uh, yeah. Um. Oh, my turn. I have nothing to add. I oh, okay. How did that happen? <laughs> You've answered the question. Okay. Thank you, Scott. Really good question, mate. Um, do what's right for you is the bottom line. All right. Question from Nick. Now, Nick starts with saying first name only, please, which is which is a good thought, mate. So well, well done, as I was just saying. That it makes it much, much more, more likely that I'm going to get this right. And uh, we're amateurs, so help us out. All right. Hi, guys. Loving the podcast. Thank you, Nick. Just wanted to ask two questions. Maybe one for you, Scott, and one for you, Doc. I'm not sure. We'll, we'll, we'll see the question and see why he asked each of us which question and see yeah, what we'll, he thinks we'll, of us yeah, as a result. Yeah, that's, that's a good strategy. Hopefully you asked me the easy one. Scott, what is your recommended strategy for superannuation during a recession? I believe that during that should a recession start, it is better to be high risk. Obviously, if you can foresee the recession, it would be better to be conservative and switch at the bottom. However, on a downward trend, I believe it would be better to snap up shares at a discount. Would appreciate your thoughts for a 30-year-old if possible. Mate, I'll ask the second question second. I'll get rid of this one first so we don't confuse our listeners. Um, and you can wind this one, by the way. Um, really great question, Nick. Uh, look, uh, at some point I'm going to write uh, maybe a book or an article or something. There's so much as Doc's already said about temperament when it comes to investing, right? So like what is the best thing to do? There is, again, a rational answer and there's a, a 
I said to the guys before I say on this podcast regularly, the only good advice is the advice that's taken, right? I can be the smartest bloke with the best advice in the world. And if you don't feel good about taking the advice, you're not going to do it and actually make you worse off by giving you the air quotes correct advice that you don't take versus, versus you know, more acceptable, more, more doable advice. That's a terrible grammar, but you know what I mean. So here's the thing. The, the best investment to make during a recession or any downturn is the stock that falls furthest from its long-term value, right? So if you think, we talked about this with a bit on Friday, actually, with the coronavirus commentary, that, you know, if, if, if you get two shares, and let's say they're both, both priced appropriately in this to start with, and that's never the case, but let's assume that. Let's say they're both 100 bucks, because it's easy. Company A falls to 20, company B falls to 50, now, company B, the one that falls less, is probably going to be the blue chip one that everyone goes to. And and someone's going to say, and we've had this before, I've said this before myself before thinking it through better. Let's say Woolies goes from 100 to 50, right? I go, well, I've always wanted to buy Woolies, but it's never quite been cheap enough. And now it's cheap enough to buy, so it's on my list. I want to buy it. That's what many people do. Now, that's if you want Woolworths, if you want to own it, if you're happy with that, that's great. And I think, again, as I said, if that's it, buy something rather than nothing because frankly, what most people do in a recession is buy nothing because they'll be too scared to. So the, the, you know, buying anything at all, <laughs> almost anything, as long as it's quality, is better advice than buying nothing. So that's the first thing. So whatever whatever you can and will buy is the best thing to buy. But for most people, they'll say, well, Woolies has fallen 50%. That's a great deal. I finally get a good price. I'm definitely buying Woolies now. Let's say company B is, and I'll use Flight Center because it did actually join the GFC, I think even during SARS, speaking of um, Asian illnesses. Um, Flight Center fell from 30 to 3. So let's say Flight Center falls from 100 to 10. Yeah. Now at that point, it's scary to buy Flight Center because there's SARS and there's recession and there's consumer spending and there's online travel agents and, and all, of the, all of the bad news is priced in. Now it fell from 30 to 3 and it went back to 50 at some point. I think it's probably about 40-ish now, Doc, I can't remember. Um, you should have bought in that circumstance, in this hypothetical circumstance, Flight Center because, not because it had fallen further, but because on the fullness of time, it was still worth $40. The market just got freaked out. You know, but both, both my hypothetical companies are worth 100 bucks. So the one that falls the most is the one you want to grab, not because it's fallen per se, not because the percentage fall is large, but the gap between its current price and the fair value of the stock is larger. And you always, always want to buy the stock that is currently at the biggest, uh, at the lowest price relative to its future that you possibly can. If I know a stock's worth $1,000 in a year's time, I want to buy it for 100 If you give it to me for 100 now, I'll absolutely do that every day of the week. Um, it can feel scary though. So I, do, I wouldn't say, see, so you, you use the, you use the, um, uh, what'd you use the word? Use the word aggressive maybe? I'm not sure. Anyway, um, uh, so you just say it's better to be high risk is the word you use. That's right. I believe should the recession starts better to be high risk. I think risk is a, I think we need to be really, really careful with our terms here. So I think during a recession or during a market downturn, you want to buy high quality companies. Absolutely. But if you can, the ones that are the furthest away from their post recession value, as long as they're not going to go broke in the meantime, that's a big one, is really important. So with Woolies fell by half and flights that have fell by 90%, seems easiest and obvious in hindsight, but buy the flights that don't buy Woolies just because it's high quality, just because it's conservative. That would be my best advice. Now, a company might have gone broke. So um, Centro Property, for example, fell 90% and then effectively fell the rest of the way to zero. It didn't quite, it was restructured and whatever. Um, but in those circumstances, don't buy it just because it's fallen. Central was a terrible business, way too much debt, low quality properties, couldn't refinance. Don't buy it just because it's cheap, just because it's fallen. But if you do get to buy a, a good business that's fallen, you want to buy the one that's fallen, if not the most, at least the one that has the most upside once the storm clouds pass. Doc? That's very comprehensive. I have nothing really to add. 
In that case, I'm going to move to the next one because I've got, I guarantee you've got nothing to add for the next one. Uh, <laughs> Nick says, Doc, wonder if you have any thoughts on rectifier technologies, especially as a Tesla enthusiast, as they specialize in parts used for fast charging. Oh, he, says, he says, and obviously none of this is personal advice and is general in nature, but appreciate your thoughts. Full on Nick. Doc, rectifier technologies, is it a is it a gonna get caught up in the Tesla wave? Is there some value there in the company? Um so Nick met uh Frank answers, I've actually not looked at rectifier technology. You'll have technology, to now. So now I'll have to look and to see what <laughs> they do. Um yeah, I mean, if they're doing something special in, in charging and that, that they can sell their charging technologies or other uh, electric vehicles, then there might be some potential here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's a question of seeing whether there's real earnings, um, a product with a roadmap to uh, to sell to other OEMs, um, mm-hmm. then that might be an interesting thing. Well, that, those are my high-level thoughts without having actually looked at the company. Very good. Uh, mate, question from Juan. Juan says, Hi, Scott and Doc. I've been listening to your suggestion of investing in US shares to have exposure to the rest of the world. Good man. What is the best way to do this? Is there a better option than stake for people investing less than 20K? Lastly, in broad terms, how do taxes work for investments in the US? I understand you can't give personal advice, just asking your general opinion on these matters. Thanks and hope this makes it to the podcast. It certainly did. Full on one. Now, he also says, forgot to mention, I love the show. I've been listening for about a year now and it has been really educational. Really appreciate the work you do. I'm a subscriber in EO and thinking about joining other services. Once again, full-on Juan. That is awesome. Thank you, Juan. We really appreciate the questions, mate. Um, and always appreciate the kind words as well. It doesn't, doesn't hurt. Uh, we would have asked, we would answer the question anyway if you hadn't been kind, but we appreciate you doing it. Doc, exposure in the US, less than 20 grand. What do you do? Um, so there are, there are multiple broker options. I mean, stake is an option. Um, uh, they have a different free structure uh, because they don't, I mean, there's not real brokerage, but they're taking charge on um, the exchange rate. Last one I remember, and again, something has changed with how they're mm. actually charging. So I'm not really 100% up to speed on that. Um, there's Saxo Capital Markets. I use that as well. They they charge less than 10 bucks per trade um, for in the US. So that's, that's pretty reasonable. Mm-hmm. They have, I think, a dollar three thousand Australian minimum. Uh, the thing I'll flag with them is that they charge a an account keeping fee of sorts um, mm. on non-ASX holdings and that is about I think last I remember it's like 0.11 or 0.12% right. um, that can quickly add up mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, for a large account so just remember that um, so you know again or you can just use Comsec I mean you you, you yeah. know you, you pay um, what $29 or whatever it is uh, for doing the, or $30 for doing the trade uh, but you don't pay an account keeping fee. It's all a give and take in that sense. Um, those are some of the options I can think of. I think Charles Schwab now requires a much larger deposit. Um, uh, Charles Schwab, you could still open an account, but I believe their minimum now is twenty five thousand yeah. US, yeah. which which makes it which basically they're saying that we don't want um, people to apply unless they have they bring twenty five k or more. Um, uh, there there are other options. There's IG Markets is an option as well. Um, they offer U.S. trading. So there are plenty of options. Um, they might not be the usual ones that you think of, but there are options. I, I've got to say, man, I, 
I haven't said this in a long time because I actually hadn't, I haven't been paying attention. I, you, you know, I have a, um, an option, a Charles Schwab account. It used to be Options Express. I've had that for years before they had the the, the low minimums or high minimums put in. Um, I had a look at the Comsec costs, and again, we mentioned Comsec a lot. I actually have zero. Impact. We bagged Comsec on or Commonwealth Bank on Friday, so um, we still clearly have no uh, no no commercial relationship there. Um, There's 1995 US for trades up to 5,000 US, which is actually pretty. Inexpensive. It's actually cheaper than a non. If, if you use Comsec without a, a linked um, shares account, it's like twenty nine ninety five for brokerage here. So, um, you, I, I'm, I got to say, I, I'm almost inclined to suggest that most people who don't want to deal with foreign exchange translation, all that kind of rubbish, just do it straight through Comsec for twenty bucks. Yeah, I mean, you could do it through Saxo too. I mean, yeah, Saxo yeah. would give you nine ninety nine. Yeah, do the yeah. try. You with Saxo, you can pick. Um, you know what your base currency wants to. You, yeah, you yeah. want reporting and all those things. Oh, sorry, um, not saying not saying Saxo is bad. Just just more. I haven't haven't mentioned it in the past. I'm just adding to your thoughts. Oh yeah, yeah, Comsec yeah. being another option. Just because yeah, it's, it's definitely an option. I, yeah. When I first started trading with Comsec, I want to say it was sixty five US dollars a trade from memory. Maybe yeah, it, you're 69 or something like that. Yeah. And, oh, um, I, I don't know whether they're still live trading or not because, it, you know, one of the things that really turned me off with Kongsik back mm. in the day mm. was you actually have to submit a trade that actually was manually executed by someone. <laughs> okay, right. Um, and, it, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you woke up at night and actually put <laughs> the trade in. Somebody actually yeah. has to run that trade. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing I'll point out is if somebody, if you've got 20, you know, K, 40K, 30, if you've got like, mm. if you've got $25,000 US that you want to transfer mm. um, or you can um, you know, convince a U.S. broker to actually open an account for you. Charles Schwab charges zero dollars for trades. Yeah, <laughs> right. And that's pretty no, cheap. <laughs> that's very cheap. <laughs> you can't beat zero, and exactly. there's no account keeping fee. Exactly. Right. So, and and they've got a very yeah. good platform. So, I mean, that's something to think about. Is that you totally. know, <laughs> zero beats everything. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. All right. So there's a there's a good uh, a good set of suggestions. Hope for that works. But I said Saxo is great. I, I would suggest Comsec. I do like Stake as well. By the way, I haven't used it. Um, and if you got the cash or when you've got the cash, something like uh, Schwab is a good one to go with as well. All right, mate. Another question we've got from Cameron this time. Comes, hey Scott and Doc, I'm a subscriber to both of your services plus dividend investor. Good man, Cameron. Thank you. Long time listener, and I love the show. Only a couple of years now, but I must say I've learned to acknowledge my biases much better due to your listening to your podcasts. Good man. Uh, interesting thread on Twitter this week. When there being $3 trillion in Aussie super savings. Here's a question you're going to like, Doc. Is the ASX overinflated due to the super funds, which people can't withdraw yet? And more generally, as general advice only, how should I invest, split my investments? Currently outside super, I'm only 20% invested overseas. As a 40-year-old with a 20-plus year time frame, where do you see better returns? Uh, Asia, Australia, US tech or other? Tough question. Hope you can both put your valuable two cents in. Thanks and full on. He says, P.S. Scott, you retweeted me last year. Boom, be like Cameron. When I switched my mortgage to 2.84% currently to hashtag get a better rate. Karen, if you throw a hashtag in, you're always going to get a mention. It's also on Insta. Hashtag get doc on Insta. It's all happening. Doc. Two questions. Yeah. Aussie super savings, are they overinflating the ASX? Yeah, so this, you know, this is a very interesting question. I, I really, I don't, I don't have a definitive answer. I have, I can theorize about it because that's what we do. Nah. <laughs> um, and, and the theory is worth exactly one cent, not even two cents. <laughs> um, so, so I think the issue, I do think what happens is we have a, we have one of the world, world's largest super pools, right? Mm. And, there's a tendency of that super pool to get invested on the SX. Now, when you have a large sum of money following a market, and in that market, let's say the liquidity basically 
drops off or drops down dramatically mm-hmm. after say SX 200, maybe SX 250, after mm-hmm. you've, you've removed those 250, 300 companies in the top, um, it, it really has, basically means that a large pool of money is actually following those top 200 or top 300 companies. That does two things. I think it, it a lot of money chasing a few set of stocks mm. uh, pushes the prices up for those things, um, which is why, uh, you know, on a peer-level basis, I would say that there are some stocks here that would look expensive compared to peer-level basis, mm. those stocks on global markets, right? Now, while fully acknowledging that, you know, maybe I shouldn't be comparing CBA with, um, I don't know, uh, Wells Fargo in the U.S. Mm. because of different market dynamics and so on and so forth. But, I mean, you could make the argument for consumer discretionary, for example. Consumer discretionary um, would look relatively overpriced. But there's, I think that that partly explains the reason. So there's some home bias, mm. not just in investors overall, um, but there is a home bias also from the industry because the industry allocates, I think, a portion of the funds, um, a good portion of funds, right? I mean, if you think yeah. about it in the other way, the Australian equity market is about 2% of the world equity market, right? But if you invest 50% of $3 trillion in this 2% equity market, it pushes up <laughs> the equity market. You're, now, saying you're saying there's no allocation somewhere there. So there's some allocation <laughs> issue there. Now, the flip side is that because the super, super is guaranteed and because money is mm. coming into super, it, this trend can continue for a while until mm. some things happen. Happened, right? Right, right, right. I mean, one of the things that could happen, and this is again something to note. I've, I've thought a little bit about this: is our companies are not large enough to make them worthy of international short sellers, right? Because if they become too expensive at mm. some point, somebody's going to come and short them. But they're probably not liquid enough and not big enough to be worthy of short plays, mm. and 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 therefore that arbitrage value uh, valuation arbitrage is not yet happening, right? But uh, yeah, this is a, this is a great question, something to think about um, in terms of you know. So I find a lot of if if you talk about the word value as in like you know opportunities i think it is in the less liquid spectrum is where uh, where i fish and i find that there's value there because what happens is that those are ignored by the big fish typically um, but again you know you could say that there are a lot of small cap funds chasing the same pool of small stocks but um, i feel that the big dollar amounts are not chasing um, that and uh, you know again there's probably some biased view there of mine based on where I fish versus what I think um, that's coloring my that's that's I think that's the answer to the um, bit about uh, the trillion dollars in funds yeah look I, I don't have much more to add about the doc I, I, I don't I don't sense the Australian market is hugely overvalued as, as a rule Um on that, on that specific basis. Now, the reality is that we've already talked about the banks a couple of times. I think the banks are probably more expensive than they deserve to be. And frankly, because the banks are a third of the market, were they to be revalued down by 10, 15%, they would take uh, a decent chunk out of the market value, right? Like they, they should. Um, and, and frankly, they probably should. So if you take a third of the market down 15%, well, guess what? That takes five percentage points off the market. That's probably justified. Um, but that's that's the reality. Similarly, the miners are cyclical, and so they'll be expensive sometimes and not other times. And there's companies that Doc talks about, the CSLs, the Cochleas, the REA groups, the – what else, mate? That's probably the ones that come to Black mind. Blackwash? Be kind. Um, <laughs> Treasury? The, I, mean, no, I mean the ones, that, the ones that have sustainably high PEs forever. So CSLs have been a PE of 40 forever. Um, there, there are some companies that kind of probably earn being, – being the best of – a small market gets you a premium price that you wouldn't otherwise get if it was, you know, still a great company, but compared to other comparators in the US, as Doc's kind of inferred. So I think to some degree, 
I'm not too worried about that. I don't think it's the thing is I don't think it's going to change anytime soon, right? So I guess that's the question: is if, if you thought it was going to change, that's a big deal. If you don't think it's going to change, then it ceases to become a big deal and becomes a, just a theoretical argument. What I do hope over time is the Australian superannuation pool will continue to grow, and it'd be an absolute travesty if. Australian superannuation trustees aren't looking outside Australia in much, much larger numbers for other opportunities. If you're not, Doc's already said, 2% of the world's markets. Now, potentially, we should only have 2% of Australian super funds invested in Australia. And that's probably too small just for a whole lot of reasons, including, um, again, super fund member comfort. Um, but if you know 50%, 60%, 70% of the money is not outside Australia, I argue that the superannuation trustees probably aren't doing the right thing. They have to consider things like cash flows and timing of redemptions and stuff. So it's not just as easy as it is for you and I just to say, well, you know, put our money there and leave it there to where 60. They've got they've got redemptions today. People are retiring today. Other people are starting jobs today. They've got to think about those things. But there should be much, much, much larger, and I desperately hope there will be over time, exposure in Australian funds to overseas equities. Speaking of which, Doc, that's Cameron's second question. He says he's only got 20% of his money invested overseas. What proportion do you think most of our listeners should have of investing investments overseas versus here at home? Oh, that's another really tough question. It's, <laughs> it's tough because... Good one, Cameron. Uh, uh, it's tough because, again, there's a lot of personal circumstances and mm-hmm. situations and tolerance and so many things that comes into play, right? So number one is that if people are thinking about currency, then... You know, the currency also matters. The currency exchange rate matters, mm. right? You need to have a view on the exchange rate and what you think the exchange rate is going to do versus <laughs> the earnings growth you're going to get versus the, you know, the maybe PE expansion that you're going to get. Yep. Um, well, my, my general rule of thumb is that, you know, um, the way I look at it, the, our market is 2% of the global market. And if 90% of my funds are invested mm. locally, then it is definitely over-allocated. Um, I think a substantial, as you said, substantial portion should be allocated overseas for anyone with um, with a long time frame, basically. Mm. Um, especially, I mean, if you're not a dividend-focused investor, um, you know, we've got a really sweet system here in terms of dividends and franking and so on, mm. which, which again, uh, uh, you know, uh, plows money back into the local market for those reasons. But uh, aside from that, I mean, you know, substantial, I would say basically substantial, chunk should be in overseas market largely because um, a lot of interesting growth companies are there so if you're looking for growth and diversification um, access to you know some of the best technology companies some of the upcoming and the you know the future best technology companies yeah. for the lack of a better word um, you know game changing world changing companies and a lot of those are overseas and when I say overseas I don't necessarily mean the US I mean US is one yeah. part of the market but there's a lot of interesting companies in you know from other developed uh, parts of the world Europe, Asia, Emer- the UK yeah and, and even Asia now increasingly yep. Asia is, is throwing a lot of interesting companies out M- many of them are dual listed um, mm-hmm. so you get access to them by being in the US market <laughs> uh, but you know you could also access them via other markets like for example the Hong Kong market so um so yeah, I, I mean, it, there's no no perfect answer, no right answer mm. for this. Mm. Again, it is an individual circumstance thing. Uh, but yeah, it it should be a lot more than uh, yeah. uh, what it tends to be. Typically, is it would be my general view. Yeah, I I, I I don't have much of a different view other than to say. So there's a general rule of thumb about, about percentage. I think that's valid. I think the other thing too is think about just almost as an individual investor rather than rather than trying to look overseas versus home and then make that allocation first uh, it, the, the the most helpful way over time if you can is think about the total universe almost geography agnostically right so is 
Apple a better company than Woolworths? If it is, buy Apple. If it's not, buy Woolworths. Is Amazon a better company than Kogan? If it is, buy Amazon. If it's not, buy Kogan. Or buy both, potentially, in, in both cases. But rather than rather than thinking, okay, I've got X percent of my money overseas, therefore I put that there. Now how much of that do I spend or invest on on the companies I like in those markets? It may be from time to time that the Australian market is much cheaper than the US because something happens here and you get great opportunities. It may also be the case that other times the US market is much cheaper than Australia. And as Doc said, it could be Asia or UK or Europe or anything else. Um, it, 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 it may be simpler to just think about it buckets first and then work out where to allocate the bucket. And that's completely reasonable. Um, I, just, I guess I just want to take a slightly different perspective and say, you know what, if you end up with 90% of your money invested in the US, as long as you don't have any time-bound issues around currency conversion, which is something you should think about, um, then invest in your best ideas, right? It, it's it, it, the, the reverse, and you're not saying this, of course, Cameron, but the reverse is also true. If, if someone said to you, um, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to you know, exclude my best five ideas, only invest in my ideas six through 10, because I happen to be in a certain geography, you'd, you'd perceive people are crazy. Now, whether that's best five ideas in Australia, best five ideas in the US, is almost irrelevant. You want to be investing in your very, very best ideas. Yes, absolutely consider diversification. Yes, consider industry or risk or technology or geography concentration for sure. Um, but broadly speaking, if it helps you, and it may not, but if it does help you, think about uh, borderless investing rather than buckets if that's if that's one way to, to start that process. If if the NASDAQ ETF you talked about is a great idea, then go for it. If it's not and you've got a better idea in Europe, go for it. If it's better in Australia, then go for that too. Um, being invested somewhere just because it's at a particular geography but a worse idea is probably not a great way to go. Doc? That's another very good answer. <laughs> Mate, as I said, I'm just sprinkling dust on your great answers. So, um, I don't know about that. It's reflected that. glory, yeah, dude. Some, something is up today. <laughs> you're, just, you're just defeating my answer. Must be the caffeine. Mate, here's a chance for... Uh, well, I don't, that's not true. But even if it was, here would be a chance for you to win back a bit of glory. This is our last question for this particular podcast. I've made our listeners wait for it because it's kind of fun. Now, I will put a time limit on us, mate, because we've gone for over an hour. And, and while hopefully our loyal listeners are still loving it and want us to keep talking forever, it's also important to live wanting more. So we will, just for our own sakes, limit ourselves. But I did want to throw this one in because I did promise it earlier uh, in this podcast and also on Friday. Russ hit us up, mate, on Twitter. He said, uh, hi, gents. Do you ever worry about getting caught up in the hype of company narratives, Berkshire slash Tesla, and miss red flags or poor fundamentals? Which I thought was a fantastically great question. My response to Russ was, yes, <laughs> I do. Um, but how do we go about considering that, mate? To the extent that you know we're in love with one company or another, that, that we, you know, we, we, are we likely, and if we are likely, are we likely to... Maybe think a bit more of the company. Give it a pass on some things. Maybe we shouldn't. Um, do we kind of tend to downplay some red flags? Oh, she'll be right. I, I'm really comfortable with the company. These biases that we talk about all the time, both, you know, and Berkshire and Tesla were great examples, right? Berkshire's my favorite company run by my favorite investor. You have issues with that. Uh, Tesla's one of your favorite companies. I have issues with that. Both of us probably right and wrong in different parts. But, you know, am I, am I completely open to criticisms of Warren Buffett? Probably not. Not as much as I should be. Um, how, how would you tell me to go about making sure I don't get caught up in the hype and missing some of those red flags or changes in fundamentals? This is a brilliant, brilliant question. Isn't it? There's, yeah, fantastic question, Russ. Uh, love it. Um, it's not a no, no, no good solution. You know, I have a, when in doubt, I have a r simple rule of thumb. Who's going to make me more money? <laughs> and like if, and 
And for that, you know, I don't really, you know, we had a discussion about this in the morning, actually, which I'm not going to go into details about. I was going uh, to mention that. Uh, but, but, but I think my rule of thumb there is that all I care for is what is the likelihood of a CEO, <laughs> a company making me more money, a lot more money in the future. <laughs> if the answer to that is, in, is yes, within the bounds of probability, then I want to invest in a basket of those companies. I do not care about any other thing, really. It, and including, I, I would be happily ignoring red flags. Largely because I'm weighing the red flags against the green flags, right? So what are the green shoots? What are the red shoots? What are, you know, what are the five things that are working right, in favor? And, and that's the only thing that matters. I do not care when I'm thinking about investing as to what Warren Buffett's last 50 years of record is completely immaterial. What matters is how much is Buffett going to make me in the next 30 years? <laughs> right. If the answer to that is market matching or poorer than that, I am not going to have my funds in it. Right. Right. And, and, uh, People, you know, you know, people would say, "No, I have investment in Apple," and you know, how is that? Well, you know, there's a very rational reason um, to holding Apple, right? Mm-hmm. And and so far, my rational reason has been slowly but steadily been proven correct. Um, so I, I think that's the threshold I use. Uh, everything else is really secondary for me. My threshold is if I think there is a huge upside potential to my returns. I don't. The, the narratives don't matter, but 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 mm-hmm. they have to be based on. Um, my view of the company, my view of what the company is doing, whether or not they're going to succeed. And and uh, and I think I take this view on across all the companies I hold. Mm. And I assume that some of them are not going to work out, which is fine. But I just let my basket of ideas run and my basket of highest reward ideas run. Mm. And as long as they're going to deliver on average, I'm just going to be happy. Yes, I'm sure some of them are going to fall flat on his face. Some of them I'm going to lose 50% of my funds. Um, but that's okay. Again. Mate, can I put some words in Russ's mouth? Yeah. I think that's I think that's a really good answer. I, I like the idea of the weighing up the, the total total upside, thinking about total downside, and then making placing your bets appropriately. I think what Russ might be asking us though is how do we make sure that the upside potential isn't clouded by our emotional attachment to companies or to narratives? So to the extent that I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett's investing style, his focusy approach, his history, I, I'm I'm very aware that my even even if I believe it's market beating, and I do, so let's let's put that out there. And you disagree, but that's okay. Let's just let's just work on the hypothetical for a second. There, there is there is some part of my decision making that I have to admit must be not as rational as it might otherwise be because I have an emotional attachment to Buffett or Berkshire. To the extent that you might have an emotional part of your attachment to Tesla or Apple, or I might have it to Telstra or Blackmores. Um, you know, it's one thing to say that I just look at the upside, but if I'm honest with myself. Part of that upside potential I see is actually not, you know, is, is emotionally driven in some way, shape, or form to some degree. And so I guess the question there is, I, I, if I'm honest with myself, I have to say, you know, do, am I am I sure my thinking about Berkshire or, or Blackmores or Telstra is completely rational? No, because of some of that getting caught up in the narrative bit. And when it's caught up in the narrative, as Russ says, or just generally an attachment that isn't purely rational, we're not robots, we're not Vulcans, to use the Star Trek reference. How, how do you, and I'll ask you about Tesla, not, not to have a go or not to be in any way be pejorative, just how, how do you make, how do you separate out the kind of the the awe and, and, and kind of, love might be too strong a word, but you know, you, you're, you're feeling, you feel very positive about what Tesla's doing and what Elon's doing, how smart he is, and how do you make sure that, doesn't cross over from a rational observation into a more emotional component that may cloud your judgment over time. So, I mean, I think the Tesla debate is is, is an interesting one, right? Now, I talk a lot about Tesla. I've been telling people to invest in it when you know from two hundred dollars, <laughs> thank you, thank you, uh, one hundred eighty dollars. People have not been investing in it. Now, here's the thing, right? Yeah. 
And, and, and you know, I'm going to make another point. I think there's a lot of people who write beautifully about stuff, but they are making points about writing. And I think there's mm. a you know, and I maybe I'm not eloquent enough to explain it, but I I am not in awe of Elon Musk okay. in the sense that I am not an Elon Musk fan because of wow, Elon Musk. You know, I'm not a Elon Musk fanboy. Mm. What I'm a fan of is the ability of one man to execute. Mm. And I basically look at, I look at execution, right? And, and what I look at as execution is, okay, is if a person can start and make a company survive that most people think will not survive, mm. that is a huge checkbox in my in my, in my my books. Right? Right. That's number one. Number two is that if, if a person has a track record of success and success in diverse fields mm-hmm. and people talk highly of that person's ability to understand concepts and think in first principles. Mm. That in my books is huge because those capabilities are very rare, Mm. right? Such people can actually change the world, Mm -hmm. right? And therefore I'm willing to take the bet that well, well, somebody can do these things, has demonstrated success. I'm basically going with demonstrated success. I'm going to demonstrate success. I'm going with commentary of other smart people who are saying, well, you know, I thought I knew this stuff, but then I talked to this person, I thought, oh, wow, okay. I probably don't understand this stuff. That is huge. I look at very very qualitative factors many times to make decisions. I'll give you an example. The, um, the, The name is escaping my mind, but the person who's the director of AI at Tesla, is a Stanford PhD graduate whose track record would make a lot of professors uh, <laughs> like, you know, they would not know where to hide. Right, right. That guy in his PhD has done more than a lot of professors would do in an entire lifetime, right? Now, why, w- and that person graduated from Stanford and could have become a professor or a scientist at another place. Why this person- Andre Kaparthi? Andre Kaparthi, Karpathi, right? I looked it up for the record, but just yeah. so, so now, why would somebody like Karpathi go and work in Tesla, which is amazingly, supposedly very hard place to work, right? And I would pin the number one reason for some of the most talented people to go and work in that place like that mm. is your ability to deploy a solution at scale and see your work come to fruition. Right. Those are humongously powerful things. Yeah. Right? Now, does it does not mean success will happen, but they have got stuff that's happening mm. because of those reasons. It's your ability to deploy things at scale. It's your ability to have someone who is willing to think out of the box. It's your ability for someone who is willing to take out of the box and therefore take those risks, right? It's not about being a fan. I'm a fan for those mm. reasons. I'm mm. a fan for being for the willingness to take those chances, right? And you know, you brought up this point about corporate governance and things like that. I, mean, I actually don't care about those things because it really does not matter. Mm. In the larger scheme of things, corporate govern- governance in many ways could be just tech checking the boxes, right? Mm-hmm. It does not move the needle, right? In, in in this particular case, for example, you raised the point that, well, you know, they said they're not going to raise capital. That was at $500 and the shares are at like $900. Well, things have changed, right? In two weeks of things change, there's a coronavirus. Those things were not there at that time. So things have changed and therefore they said, well, I'm going to take this opportunity and raise money. Maybe we'll just speed up you use the cash level, 2% dilution, we'll raise some money and we use that for that. So I think it's it's the ability to do those things quickly, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, do those things that other people won't do because they'd be worried about other things um, that make, so it's not that it's without risk, but it's mm-hmm. not about being a fan. It's about the delivering on the results. Is uh, there any part of your investing process though that you think is, can, can lend itself towards less than rational for 
emotional reasons. I guess so the question for my, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to make it about Tesla, the company necessarily. Just, just more those those companies that we that we like that you know. I think we all have to acknowledge you know, things like a very simple one is um, I've lost the name of the bias now. An endowment effect, right? We we like things more we own than we don't. So it's it's probable that as humans, we I, I like what do I own? Um, Australian Ethical, right? Fund manager. Um, the psychology tells us that I should and do like that company more now I own the shares than I did before I owned them, and that changes the way I psychologically um, evaluate those things. Right? Just we, we know that we know that to be true across most people for most things. So I have to be mindful for myself that. You know, and, and some of that services, right? I, I'm I'm less likely to downgrade a company or, or take a negative view of a company we've already recommended, again as as a behavioural bias, because because that's what we do. And I guess that's the question: is where, where how how would you suggest that I or Russ or somebody else goes about separating out some of those unconscious subconscious biases that stop us being as rational as we otherwise might like to be? Um, yeah. So again, uh, everybody has biases. I, I guess here's the thing, right? I'm. Hap- I think we should all question the a view we have, right? Yeah. But I think what we shouldn't do is we shouldn't fall into the view which is the generally accepted view. So that's that's my my number one mm-hmm. way of thinking would be. Yeah. Right. Just because everybody thinks that is wrong does not mean that it's wrong. And just because everybody <laughs> yeah, thinks right. that is right does not mean that's right. that is right. In fact, and, you can't beat the market doing that, right? Which is why I've, I basically say that Warren Buffett is not going to beat the market because everything everybody thinks he's right. Well, that's too bad. That's a problem. Right. He's got a problem there. Um, so I think, I think I'm, uh, yeah, I, I try to be rational. I think what, personally, as an investor, this is what I've found. In my own investing, I I have known for a while, for example, that, uh, I'll use a name like Google, that their cloud computing, for example, is doing very well. But I personally do not like Google and what it does, its business model. Mm-hmm. I have not invested. Actually, I was an investor and I sold the shares, right? Okay. Um, I have found that it can be, my personal biases are more come in the way of of me making an investment decision. I'm actually pretty, I'm pretty happy to sell stuff mm. if I think my investment thesis is broken. As long as my investment thesis is broken, I, I, I personally believe that none of, I am not married to any share. I'm willing to question sh- the shares I own mm. if I think something has changed. I did sell, for example, Netflix after holding them for many, many years. Mm. Uh, now I could be wrong and I will be wrong about, you know, and I'm, I'm generally pretty slow to sell, right. but I, I try to dissociate owning and gains or losses that I have mm. uh, from the decision-making process. The decision-making process really is about what the company is doing today mm. and what the individuals in the company are doing today and what I think they can be tomorrow. It's all, it, really for me, the question really is always about what, and, and you can rightly say there that what I'm imagining as the future may not turn out to be that the mm. future and that mm. is always the risk mm. but mm. you know I'm trying to imagine the future for a bunch of different companies I might be wrong yeah. on many of them but as long as I'm wrong uh, as long as I'm right on average right, on right. some of them um, I'll, I'll just do fine so that, that's basically how I, I, I tend to think about strategy or, or yeah but uh, you know I think if something is not executing mm. and and I'm and I think if my thesis is not playing out as I thought it should be playing mm. out mm. um I think that actually very quickly moves stuff to a cell for me. Nice. Right, that, that's a really thorough answer. I'm going to add a couple of things uh, only and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. Uh, I think for me, 
the you kind of touched on it already. Uh, honestly, because the endowment effect is real, and because we do uh, emotional attachment does grow just by definition uh, when we own stuff, um, stocks and other things. Um, ask Marie Kondo. Um, the part, part of it is actually being slow to buy and even slower to sell. So I think most of the work on this stuff, Russ, to your question, is done when you're buying. Um, not necessarily when you're choosing whether to sell. So buying well in the first place is super important. I think that that's a really important one. Second one to Doc's point is um, I, I think the reality is it's going to happen. We need to acknowledge that and accept it. And being right more often than not um, is is again part of that solution. So trying to be right in every single stock will drive us all mad um, because it's not going to be possible, right? You could you could do I don't know how much you could do to try and be right. You never would be. Um, and so trying to be right is also not super useful. So to some degree, it's kind of like getting the guidelines right up front. If you invest in the right process and try and follow that process, and again, to Doc's point, the other thing, the third thing probably for me is understanding what the investment thesis requires of um, of you or of us. We, we recommended uh, our members sell a stock on Thursday at ShareAdvisor. That was computer share. We bought it because we thought the fundamental business was sound and growing. And we also thought it would benefit from higher interest rates, particularly in the US. Um, that's played out. We made some money, but the operating results have been ordinary and rates seem to have stalled. And so we simply got to a point of saying, okay, no longer met the original thesis. Now, I don't own that personally. Maybe we could argue I was less emotionally uh, attached to it. That, that may well be true. Um, but in any case, having a, having a really clear thesis of understanding again to Doc's point, you know, when does it when does it drop off that particular line of being still in keeping with what you wanted it to do? I think is really important. I will say I absolutely suffer from um, emotional biases, behavioral biases. Um, the endowment effect is huge. Um, you know, once I own the stock, you know, can I find reasons to keep it? Yeah. Would I buy it if I was forced to liquidate all my cash tomorrow? Maybe not. And that's another trick of thinking about stocks. You know, if I, if I had to go to cash every night, would I buy the same stocks in the morning? There's probably stocks in my portfolio. There may even be stocks on our scorecards that if you said, right, sell these 30 stocks and buy another 30 in the morning, would I buy the same 30? I'm not entirely sure I would. And so there, there are different ways to think about the process and try and separate out the emotion of holding or the emotion of, of being in, you know, engaged with a person or a company or a metric or a thesis that you can otherwise try and, to the extent possible, um, get rid of. The last point I would make is that, uh, as I've kind of said all the way through, it's not possible right, to, to, not, to not do these things. So part of the answer is just accepting that's going to happen. And realizing that you know we're all flawed as as investors, just as we are with P as people, and so getting that bit right, understanding the, the the reality of we are going to be wrong, we are going to be emotional, we are going to have biases, and Doc's already said that too. Um, just simply acknowledging it and, and kind of investing anyway, accepting the imperfection. Um, as much as it doesn't help us make better decisions, helps us sleep better. I think with the results. Any more on that one, Doc? No. Now, I gave you a plug on Friday, so I'm going to give myself a plug today, or at least my service. Motley Fool Share Advisor is a service I run. I mentioned I sold computer share. Australian Ethical, I also mentioned a couple of minutes ago. As it turns out, it's also a buy recommendation of ours. It's done reasonably well since we recommended it. We don't know what's going to happen next, of course, uh, but pretty happy with that. And the service as a whole is beating the market. It's now eight and a half odd years old. We've got a pretty good track record. We proved pretty good about the way we've been able to deliver value for our members. Importantly, it's only a couple of bucks a week, about a cup of coffee a week, give or take. Uh, particularly if you take advantage of a very special deal we have for you. And the web address for that particular deal is fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. SA for share advisor. So fool.com.au SA podcast. It's a special link just for our very special, very valued listeners. Thank you for listening. If you want a little bit more from myself, uh, you can go and get share advisor at fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. With that, mate, and after a very full mailbag, we're done. 
We are done. Before we go, don't forget you can, and we hope you will, subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, give us a rating, give us some stars. Five would be nice, six if you can. And please do tell your friends who couldn't use a little bit more foolishness in their own lives. Don't forget you can also get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.